Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Kendra Winchester here with Sachi Argerbright, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim the bookshelf and read the world. Today, we're talking about our discussion picks, World of Wonders, and The Way Through the Woods. You can find a complete transcript of this episode on our website, readingwomenpodcast.com, and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Well, we are back for more discussions of nature writing and trying to wrangle in Kendra's enthusiasm. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. The discussion episode is for your enthusiasm, so (laughs) let it roll. (laughs) Well, before we jump into that, um, I did want to give some news updates. Um, So for Patreon, uh, Ruth Ann, our wonderful Ruth Ann, she does an intense amount of work behind the scenes, so I always love to give her a shout-out for all the work that she does. And so one of the things that she does is the Patreon newsletter, and she talks about um, what she's reading. She has photos of her grumpy Westie Ted, who has all of the old man energy. Uh, I love him. Uh, He's like if Mr. Wilson from Dennis the Menace were a dog. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. It's a good good comparison. And he's very adorable. And they go on adventures. And so there's photos of that. There's, uh, she loves audiobooks. And she specializes in a lot of nonfiction and middle grade. So. Yes, thank you, Ruth Ann. She's wonderful. Now we have our guest spot. Uh, We need a little extra time to get it together uh, with everything going on this summer. But I'm so excited to be able to bring it to you uh, in our discussion episode. So before we get into discussing the books, uh, we are joined by Shelby Cole. She is a scientist and an indigenous woman. She loves to hike and all sorts of things. And when I thought about a scientist to come on to talk about nature and the importance of studying nature in a scientific way and everything that goes with that, Shelby is the first person that came to mind. Of course, all of her contact info, including her bookstagram, will be linked down in the show notes, and you can go check that out and learn more about her. But without further ado, here is Shelby. Hi, I'm Shelby Cole. Um, I'm um, a grad student right now in college. I'm a master's student getting my cellular, molecular, and microbial biology uh, master's degree in immunology at the University of Montana. Um, I'm an enrolled member of the Gravant tribe, and I'm also a member of the Little Cell Chippewa Nation. Yeah, you can find me um, on the internet. Um, I should say the most important things about me. I'm indigenous, and I'm a scientist. I love to read and hike, and I love to spend time with my dog. Um, And so I was super excited about um, getting asked to share some of my favorite topics um, for our nature theme. I think it's important as a scientist that we actually get like kind of good scientific knowledge and not just, I mean, as much as I love nature writing, um, I think it's also good just to learn more about nature, um, especially because there's so many, I think people have a certain idea about it, but when you actually get into the science of it, 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 forests function completely differently than how I think people have assumed for a long time. So uh, yeah, I'm super excited to be chosen. Uh, The book I've chosen to talk about today is Migrations by Charlotte McConaughey. Um, So this is considered environmental fiction, but really this is like, it's so eloquent 
it's a step above that even. Um, so this book is about uh, Franny Stone. She's following the last of the Arctic terns and she's following them on their last migration from uh, the Arctic to Antarctica. This book is set in um, the future, but it's it's really, it doesn't even seem like it's the future because it's really like 20 years from now, maybe. So in this future, the wildlife is starting to disappear. The last known wolf died in captivity. There's no more bears. There's no more deers. There's no more bird songs. As a consequence, the fishing industry is starting to go downhill. And, um, and so she's on the last fishing vessel that is illegally catching fish because they are because there's so few left and so she's on that boat though to follow the arctic turns and throughout the book we learn a little bit more about franny um her history and i think the most important details though about this book is that it's she so beautifully depicts the grief that we're going to experience without animals um and it's and it comes across in like it's little things you don't think about, you know, like waking up in the mornings and you don't hear any birds or walking through the forest and there's no squirrels running along the trees. And it's like these little things and really affect you, but you don't realize it, I guess. So while she's on the boat, though, we learn a little bit more about her and her history and why she's following these Arctic turns and it's it's not a spoiler because it's it's right it's one of the biggest mysteries of the book uh we find that this is essentially a suicide mission for Franny um and so I think it really interweaves how nature is so important and impactful to us as humans but also to us as individuals and how I think devastating it'll be when it's gone and yeah I think this book just perfectly captures what it's like to live kind of in a time when the world is ending basically um and kind of the internal conversations and that you're having with yourself about your culpability in it and the consequences of the actions you and of like also mankind but um, my, one of my favorite things about this book, though, is that there's a lot of um, actual like science in it, um, and it's it was a surprising amount. And as a scientist, I love obviously reading um, books of fiction that are scientifically scientifically accurate. So I was really happy. And so they go a little bit about why she cares about nature, and it was she originally was helping her scientist husband who studied birds, and it kind of just tells how the more you discover about birds and nature, kind of the more radicalized you become because you learn how humankind is destroying it. I should say though, not just humankind, it's capitalism, but how capitalism is destroying uh, nature. And you become radicalized just by learning the facts and the science. And um, I think that's a really compelling read. I think this is really, um, this is one of the last books I read of last year and it was one of my favorites and it stuck with me months later. And it's a book I will continue to read in the future. So that was Migrations by Charlotte McConaughey and I highly recommend it. So the second pick I've chosen to talk about today is Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest by Suzanne Simard. Um, so this book is from the world's leading forest ecologist. Um, she's also the person who discovered that trees are like, um, like they basically have connection hubs to like everything around in the forest and her ideas and the science behind it, her papers were also then used um, in Avatar, you know, like the biggest movie ever of all time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so the uh, Avatar was actually based on some of her findings and her ideas about the forest. So I think, like, right off the bat, like, yeah, Avatar is kind of real. I mean, like, trees are connected, and it's really interesting. So this book is, this book is a mix. It's a blend of a memoir and also just her speaking about her discoveries and the science behind it and her process kind of just as um, a woman in science. And I think this is good just for anybody who is questioning how 
scientists are making these discoveries basically and then also the science behind the policies we have um as like a forest service and um i think again this book kind of shows though how throughout her career she slowly became radicalized because she found that the policymakers and the scientists weren't listening to her data um and i mean it's it, as she shows i mean you can't argue with facts and so um, I think this really shows, it's important because it shows one, the discrimination women face in science, but then two, the discrimination scientists changing the paradigm also face. Um, but specifically, I think this goes into scientists that are changing the way um, big money operates um, because her findings showed that uh, the way that we are managing forests and the way we are letting um, lumber companies manage forests is is wrong and so she had published on this for years and decades before it got a lot of um, traction and so now she's a world-renowned forest ecologist but it shows um kind of the work she had to put in and the struggle she had to go through to get there she also i think importantly she mentions that a lot of her discoveries wall of them were um, made on indigenous land and she also said so she lived in Kamloops and so she mentions the residential schools which is really important and she mentions just kind of in general how indigenous knowledge has for time immemorial right known how to care for the land we know how to care for our land um, but the reason we are in the climate disaster we're in now is because we were not allowed to practice that. And not only that, but it was outlawed. And that it's just, it's nice to show that science, all these hundreds of years later, are finally showing that uh, indigenous scientific ecological knowledge has been right this whole time. Some of her forest work was done by prisoners um, so that some of the research she did, um, so this happens sometimes is for like, right, prisoners can do work, like obviously manual labor that no nobody else really likes to do and they do it for very little, like cents on the dollar. Um, and so she, they were helping her in her research and there's an incident and they decide that they aren't going to do this anymore. And so there's kind of an incident, but she she kind of just blows over that. But I, I just think um, I would have liked to have seen her take the care she took with the residential schools and the indigenous knowledge and use that same care to explain how the prison industrial complex is, you know, state sanctioned slavery. That would have been nice, but still though, this I still think this is, it's an important book. It gets into the science of nature and how trees and nature, we're all interconnected and forests specifically, they need each other and they cooperate together. They don't compete. And that's been the prominent, I guess, scientific theory in forest ecology is that, you know, plants compete for things, but her science directly shows that they cooperate, they share resources. And by the end of the book, throughout her right decade-long career, she finally becomes more radicalized and is being more vocal about um, the practices of the Canadian government and governments across the world and not listening to Indigenous knowledge keepers and the science. And so I think this book is just important because it shows that that scientific journey. Um, there also, though, there is also currently scientists who have always been radical. I mean, um, I mean, I can speak for me personally. The only reason I went into science was to help my community. And I think I know a lot of scientists, specifically scientists with marginalized identities that went into science for that reason. And so um, while it's nice to see that, you know, scientists are taking are slowly becoming more radicalized. I think it's also important to note that um, a lot of us have always been, I guess, um, and especially people of color. So that was Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest by Suzanne Simard. Yeah, I think I was particularly excited to be able to talk about the books I chose for this, for the nature theme, because I think it's particularly hard to find space as 
an indigenous person, even like a person with marginalized identity about in, in nature and then also in the writings of nature. Because I think a lot of times that space, I mean, we've seen it co-opted over and over again. And so I sometimes am a little hesitant to pick up nature writing for that reason. And that's sad. And I think these are, these are some good alternatives. They take the care that nature deserves when writing about it. They use the respect and care that I feel like any Indigenous person would take in writing about nature, I think. So if you read these books and are like, wow, you know, we're killing nature, um, there are some things you can do about it. (laughs) So uh, there's a ton of Indigenous activists that have been um, specifically protecting their treaty rights and protecting um, their water, their drinking water for not just their communities, but for all communities. And so I think it's important to um, listen and support Indigenous activists where you can. Um, Specifically, um, Stop Line 3 um, is happening. And that, I think, in particular is just time sensitive. It's about 80% done. And there's now currently people being convicted for being on their land and trying to stop it, even though it's, it's their land. So uh, there'll be action items linked in the show notes. Um, and then any, any other activists too that uh, recommend you follow. Or Thanks so much to Shelby for joining us today. Again, you can find all of her information and anything that she has mentioned in her spot linked in the show notes. All right. So now it's time to get into our discussion. So our first discussion pick is World of Wonders in Praise of Fireflies, Whale Sharks, and Other Astonishments by Amy Nazuka Matatil. And this is out from Milkweed Editions and was Barnes & Noble's Book of the Year in 2020. And I chose this book, one, because it, it, it's gorgeous also, but I, I heard um, Jordan Kistner talk to Amy on Thresholds, which is also a podcast that's part of the LeHub Radio Podcast Network. I listened to it, and I really appreciate the way that Amy talked about her experience moving around a lot um, and being a Filipina and Indian American and just her experience loving nature as a woman of color and then growing into her own. So each essay features uh, a plant or an animal or a weather some sort of aspect of nature or the natural world. And she then writes about how that connects to her life. So she's sharing personal stories as well as facts about this creature. And she blends them together so well, it created just this beautiful reading experience. Yes, absolutely. So I um, also really enjoyed this book. Um, I flew through it. Um, just in a couple of sittings. Uh, and I really loved and appreciated um, her thoughts and how she wove her various experiences and tied them into featuring these different plants and animals. And um, some of them I were very familiar with and some of them I weren't, <laughs> uh, but the ones that I were familiar with um, resonated with me in different ways. And it just shows how the world and um, nature and the earth like can mean so many different things to to everyone, which I thought was wonderful. So Sachi, what was one of your favorite essays in the collection? Yeah, so I, I think we briefly mentioned it in um, our, our first uh, episode discussing this theme, but the one that sticks out to me the most was the essay about uh, fireflies or lightning bugs, as we like to refer to them <laughs> in the Midwest. <laughs> and um, she talks about how her dad taught her a lot about fireflies and would would literally like pull over on their road trips when they would see kind of um, a, a field without a lot of, of light and they would um, try to kind of like engage with the lightning bugs. Um, And I used to do that with my grandparents. So when we first moved to Ohio, when I was like in fifth grade, um, we grew up in the South and had never seen them before. And so we went in their backyard, we got some jars, tried to catch them. And um, to this day, when I see fireflies, I think of my grandparents who are, who are both no longer with us. So it's just, 
is a nice kind of reminder of, of my memories of them and, and first moving to Ohio, which I've, you know, now lived in for most of my life. And so hearing about fireflies and learning a little bit more about them, things I, I didn't know. And then just having that shared experience of having someone, uh, you know, an elder or a parent, uh, in the family teaching them, um, about fireflies really resonated with me a lot, um, because that's something that, that I experienced when I was growing up. So that one's probably one of the ones that stick out the most to me. What about you? I have very similar memories of my grandparents having the whole lightning bug experience and you catch them. And, and I think the point you made about having a parent or an elder teach you about that is something that resonated with me with a lot of the books that we were talking about, um, because that's where I got my love of nature and remembering, you know, the, having that special memory of your, your, grandparents teaching you something like that means that every time you see that thing that 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 creature or that plant or whatever it is you remember your grandparents and that's just the beauty of having someone to teach you about the world around you and to teach you a respect for it as well which is I think an important part of the process that Amy talks mm-hmm. about particularly with her dad yeah, absolutely what uh, has, say, like resonated with you the most or stuck out to you the most? Um, I know we have a bunch of favorites, <laughs> but, but what, what, is, uh, what is one you want to call out uh, kind of first on our discussion? So one I wanted to cover was um, this essay about uh, the peacock. And so she talks about how she had just visited her family in India and she had come back to the U.S. and so she was in school and they had this assignment to draw an animal or whatever from the natural world. And she chose to write about the peacock and, you know, she put so much time into it and she put like, you know, was it the national bird of India or something like that at the top. And her teacher was terrible and was like, this is America. We feature American animals. And and I'm like... (laughs) What? Because like, if you know anything about America, you know that the peacock is is here. And in fact, one of, you know, Flannery O'Connor is obsessed with, is known for her peacocks. Like, and she's like, very America. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Yes. I just, it just blows my mind. And so kind of out of spite, like Amy, like childhood Amy, like drew this bald eagle with like a American flag. <laughs> and then like she won the competition for the Yes. I was like, oh my word. But it- And they like hung it they yeah. like hung it up and displayed it. <laughs> like like her like retaliation turned into like, yes, we love it. Like, are you joking? I I just it just blows my mind. Like, oh my word, this poor child. And so um one of the things that is throughout the book though is the peacock and she talks about how um, you know, I believe it was her grandfather or her uncle would gather peacock feathers for her while she was in India. And there's like these stories about the peacock and that's a recurring image for her uh, that connects her with her Indian heritage. And I really love what she did with that essay because she illustrated in one essay, her experience being Indian American and, um, you know, Filipino American in in across the United States because they moved a lot. So each different place is, has a very different story connected to it. And almost, you know, she's reconnecting with the land by learning about the animals and the plants around her in her new location. And that connects with her movement, which is very well done throughout the entire book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like she talks about how being a brown girl in Kansas was different than being a brown girl in Ohio. And uh, versus like her experience living in Mississippi right now. So it's like, it was really interesting to see that was discussed. I feel like, you know, whenever we hear about um, folks growing up in one specific area of the U.S. and experiencing microaggressions or just flat out racism, it's just from that one viewpoint. And she really talks about various states and various um, places and environments that she was in. Um, and, and how that informed, you know, um, where she ends up, you know, really calling her quote unquote, like home, you know, when she's older, um, which I 
I feel like I haven't really read a lot of books that have various perspectives of living in very different parts of the U.S. and how that affected, you know, childhood experiences. So I, I really liked that aspect of the book as well. Yeah, she had such a well-rounded perspective in regards to place, like you said. And one of the things um, that I really appreciated in an essay called Cactus Wren is that her father, no matter where they were, would always try to get them out into nature. And she mentions in passing in the essay that she never saw any other Asian Americans out in nature. And she discusses this more on the podcast episode on thresholds that I mentioned, but she really kind of wanted to claim this space of loving nature for herself and, you know, maybe other girls like her who didn't see representation might be able to see her work and now have that representation and be able to see, oh, you know, it, it is okay that, you know, I'm Asian American and love nature because you have that kind of someone to look up to. And that was such a, I think, important moment because so often, you know, people of color are the only person or one of a few people in these nature loving spaces. And that's just not discussed enough in nature writing. And so I really appreciate the way that um, she's been, you know, been tackling that both in this book and in different interviews and essays. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's part of the reason why I never really picked up nature writing in in, um, kind of my, my reading life, because I in recent years have focused so heavily on on different viewpoints and reading books from various marginalized communities, whether it's, you know, queer authors or um, BIPOC authors, things like that. And every time I, I saw a nature book, it's usually from a white person. So I was like, you know, I'm okay. <laughs> but um, when we when we were picking books for the theme for this, that, you know, um, this episode, I said, you know, I really want to find some books um, from non-white authors. And we found some um, incredible books. And so if they're out there, I think they're just harder to find. And I'm glad that we're highlighting them. And I really hope that it leads to more um, uh, BIPOC uh, authors in the space so we can hear some of their really great perspective on nature um, because I think there is a lot of opportunity, just not a lot of representation. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, all the books that we chose um, as our four picks, we chose are by women of color Mm -hmm. and they're, they're there. You just have to look for them mm-hmm. a little bit sometimes. And so I I also, you know, I wanted to find international things because we are doing an international yeah! theme as well. <laughs> um, and so we did find a book in translation. It's also Women in Translation Month. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I really appreciate, you know, going back to Amy, I really appreciate the way that she discusses that. And also the animals that she features are from all around the world yeah. as well. And so she discusses, you know, some researchers, she'll mention like different things um, about the cultural heritage of that animal, like this one bird who like in South America that sounds like someone's dying or like (laughs) they're a spirit or whatever. Like it's this bird, let me tell you. Uh, So like I went and looked up online. I was like, she's not kidding. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like the bird is dying. (laughs) And it's. And it's like, okay, and so according to local tradition where the bird is, it's the idea that it's a spirit that's making its way to the afterlife or it's a spirit wandering the forest. Like there's a lot of like cultural traditions around these animals that she touches on. Mm -hmm. And so obviously the full version of that is in the book, but um, I really appreciated the way that she also connects the creatures to their local environment and the people who live there. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like there there is a focus on some of the uh, plants and animals that she encounters, you know, throughout her life in America. But she also talks about how she tries to engage with nature um, and, you know, with the different animals in her travels, too. So she kind of mentions um, some trips and, and vacations that she she takes uh, because of the different um, plants and animals that are in those areas, which I thought, you know, was really cool. Like sometimes we plan, you know, I've I've planned a trip around like bookish places to go to. Um, so it's like very similar, you know, taking a trip 
for food or you know for books it you can also take a trip to explore nature too which i never really have thought about um that much or really considered but it totally makes sense which i thought was really great that she touched on that yeah i i love that as well and she talks a lot about you know they go see a whale shark in an aquarium and she kind of touches on you know how ethical it is to keep you know, large creatures like whale sharks in aquariums. And we've all, you know, we've heard the whole SeaWorld saga with orcas and, and different things. So um, she really, I, I think, brings into that conversation ethical study of animals as well a little bit. And of course, people have written a gazillion books on the topic, but I appreciate that she acknowledged that conversation and understanding while visiting an aquarium versus visiting a creature and seeing it out in the wild. Um, and the last one that we have is we both have a lot of personal connections to um, this experience that she did with her kids, which was have a monarch uh, butterfly or attempt to have a monarch butterfly, you know, move from a, I was like, worm? No, like from a caterpillar. <laughs> worm! <laughs> I was like, that's not the right word, Kendra. It's, no. They look um, like worms. You're not far off. They do. They do. And then as they get fatter, as they eat the milkweed, like, yeah. you're like, what is happening to this thing? And then eventually the <laughs> caterpillar turns into a chrysalis. And the idea is that you watch this chrysalis become clear and you can see the butterfly's wings. And then the butterfly has that huge effort to leave the chrysalis. But their caterpillars, or, or I guess now butterflies, were never left the chrysalis. And it was like this whole experience with her kids that she kind of had to process and explain to them, like, well, it didn't, it didn't make it. And like, she is now the teacher mm -hmm. in, in that sense. Exactly. Yeah. I think, um, I, I don't know how common it is in other, other places, but I feel like at least, you know, where, where I've grown up, it's always, always kind of like a, a little, um, kind of take home project or, or experiment that you could do, um, at home, um, to see the transformation of, of a butterfly. And, um, yeah, I feel like I've, uh, had that experience where, you know, you, when you're younger, you're like, when is it gonna wake up? And it just, it doesn't sometimes. And I think that's part of, of nature too. You know, there's, um, it's like super cliche, but like the circle of life, like sometimes things, uh, you know, uh, nature, nature doesn't intend, uh, for, for everything or even like short lifespans, uh, you know, lifespans of certain plants and animals are, are so much shorter and there's, there's purpose and reason behind that. I feel like I kind of struggled with that as a child to be like, wait, so they don't live as long as we do. And it's like, no, because sometimes that's not always, you know, what's necessary. And so I think that's important to, to teach, um, children and, and, and such, um, that, you know, the world around them also, looks and feels a little different when it comes to the life cycle, uh, versus, uh, us as, as humans. So, um, I thought that was a, a good essay, uh, to touch on that experience of passing down her love of nature down to her kids, just like her, uh, her father, uh, did with her. Well, that is world of wonders in praise of fireflies, whale sharks, and other astonishments by Amy Nazuka Matato. And that is out from Milkweed Editions. And huge shout out to Milkweed Editions. I love their books. So definitely check them out. I will include a link to their website in the show notes. And Sachi, you have our second discussion pick. My uh, discussion pick today is called The Way Through the Woods of Mushrooms and Morning by Long Lit Woon. And this is translated from Norwegian by Barbara J. Haviland. And that is out from Spiegel and Growl. And um, just a quick, you know, synopsis in case you missed our last episode. Um, Long Lit Wound uh, discovers, you know, just one day when, um, after her husband had left for work, that he um, suddenly, suddenly passes away and she finds herself in a really deep and, and depressive state. And the thing that pulls her um, out of, of her um, kind of grief um, is mushroom hunting and um, really helps her move on from the loss of her husband. And so um, Longlet Woon is an anthropologist um, and she immigrated from Malaysia to Norway 
And so um, I feel like she offers this really great and unique perspective um, and even talks about mushrooming cultures in different countries, um, you know, in comparison to Norway where she's at. Um, and there were so many fun mushroom facts I learned <laughs> through this book. And um, I feel like there, this book has so much to offer. Um, like, here's my mushroom knowledge, you know, before this book. I see a mushroom like in the grocery store. <laughs> I say, okay, this is, I need this for a recipe or whatever. And I sometimes see some funky mushrooms like in my lawn. And when I go like, you know, on a hiking trail or a walking trail in the woods. And so I knew like nothing about mushrooms. Like Kendra, did you know a lot about mushrooms before reading this book? <laughs> I knew very, I knew very little more than yeah. what you just mentioned. I love cooking them and I love <laughs> making things with them. But now that she's talk so disparagingly of how bland like grocery store mushrooms taste I'm like man I need to <laughs> I go out and change this <laughs> exactly so my I mentioned it a little bit on the last episode but my my experience is I'm not really into mushrooms like I'm not really <laughs> a fan I don't really like the texture but then I like after reading this I'm like well maybe I just need to try a wild mushroom like question mark like I don't know if like, like if I'm just like eating the gross ones or the not great ones and like my life will be better if I get like a wild mushroom but as a mushroom lover and eater Kendra like do you feel compelled to like try mushroom hunting to like expand out into like more types of mushrooms to cook with? I would definitely consider supporting a mushroom forager. <laughs> Um, sponsoring one and getting a cut of their mushrooms. Well, I know like some farmers markets have mushroom foragers, mm. you know, there yeah. or like smaller um, folks like that that go do that. But like she puts like she puts forth like the entire thing she did to get certified as like mm -hmm. an, a mushroom inspector. So when people will go foraging, the inspectors make sure they haven't like brought out a poisonous mushroom just to make sure everyone's safe. So when she gets certified for this, like it's a huge process. There's a test, you know, there's oh, classes, yeah. et cetera. And so I'm like, that's a lot of dedication, but I will support <laughs> someone's efforts. <laughs> but what I found interesting was like, I think Norway is one of the only countries that does the certification process. I think she noted yeah. like, they're like, take, they take it the most seriously. Mm -hmm. Um, and they have to memorize like 150 like species or something of, of mushroom to get certified. Um, so I'm like, if, if we don't do that in the States, like, yeah, like I don't, how, how do you, I guess there's no like That's real like true. certification for us over here as to like, you know, making sure that you know your mushroom knowledge i guess <laughs> and you're not like buying a random poisonous mushroom at the farmer's market <laughs> i know right <laughs> so i thought all of it was very fascinating like one of the um first things that she mentions like in the very introductory phases of the mushroom um uh kind of <laughs> chapters um is that you know mushrooms are commonly associated with plants but they are more characteristic of animals because like they um, have like their these like networks and such of like where they grow and things like that, and um, previously there was a subcategory in the animal kingdom for mushrooms, and it was called like chaos or like with the Latin word for chaos or something. Um, and now it doesn't even belong in the animal kingdom. She notes that it's in its own kingdom because it's not plant or animal. And I didn't know that. I thought they were plants. Like I. Just to learn, like, even within the first couple chapters, I learned, like, just all kinds of mushroom knowledge that I hadn't known before. And so what was, like, the most interesting thing that you learned about mushrooms in this book? Or maybe one of the most interesting things. I, I really found it interesting that there's an appropriate way to cook each type of mm. mushroom to get the best flavor out of it. So, for example, she notes that... You know, in Norway, there's a very specific way of cooking mushrooms oftentimes is frying mm. them. And so she notes that you should saute them in a dry pan and then add butter or mm -hmm. oil. So she notes that, you know, in Malaysia, they use, you know, soy sauce and sesame oil. So it just depends on where you are and what you're cooking. And I really appreciate that because she talks about the flavor of the mushrooms 
a ton. There's like a whole, there's a whole section on like the aroma of mushrooms and how that connects to taste and there's charts and like it connects to the whole wine, like, you know, how wine tasters have this whole vocabulary they use to describe the taste of mushroom, uh, my word, they describe the taste of a wine that they have and then mushroom folks have their own vocabulary and she compares it across countries. It's like this whole thing. Yeah. And I was just blown away at her research. Yes. Like, it, wow, there's a, there's a chart and stuff. Like, what? Yeah, like, she does, like, this whole, and I think her being an anthropologist, like, helps with this too, right? Of, like, researching these things and and helping communicate you know um these different aspects of of in this case the mushroom community but she like gets a panel of like um aromatic like people i think like she had a connection to someone like in the fragrance industry and they had like a panel of people who are like experts in the area of like aromas and fragrances and had them like attribute what they think the fragrance of a mushroom would be versus what they use as like the Norwegian languages or just kind of standard um, shorthand of like a certain smell that goes with a certain mushroom. Um, and, you know, some were aligned and some were not. And so, yeah, just very fascinating and how like um, different mushrooms have different taste profiles and, um, you know, the whole thing around like um, how mushrooms have lookalikes and how you have to be careful because some lookalikes can be poisonous and then like some lookalikes don't even taste the same and all of it was like very very fascinating <laughs> and um like I I was just thinking like a mushroom is a mushroom and like they all maybe look different but they don't they probably tell taste the same and um when she talked about like there's a whole chapter on like her recommendations or her thoughts of like her dream dinner would be to serve from appetizer to dessert um, a different dish that features a different type of mushroom. And I thought that like thinking of dessert with mushroom and she's like, and she even says in the chapter, like, I know it's might be sound strange, but like there are some great mushrooms that would be good for dessert and like better for like sweeter palates. I would have never thought that there would be like certain mushrooms that you could serve with dessert. <laughs> and so so much mushroom knowledge. Everyone's probably like, why are they still talking about <laughs> mushrooms? But I thought it was really cool. Yeah, and you and I both love cooking. Mm -hmm. You know, if we were not as a side podcast, if we didn't do the Corgi right. podcast, we would do a cooking yes. podcast, basically. And so that's like the other half of our conversations, you know. And I really love this from an ingredient perspective because there's this very hipster version of the farm-to-table movement but I really appreciate her very down-to-earth foraging perspective on mushrooms and this very intense knowledge of appreciating products. And so when we go buy products that people have found that are maybe heritage varieties of vegetables and, and the work that that farmer put into it or the forager who found the mushrooms or whatever it might be, respecting all of the effort and expertise that went into it and maybe you think about where my food comes from in a new way not just in regards to mushrooms but like all of the products that I buy if that makes sense and so I really loved it mm -hmm. from a cooking perspective it, she talks about you know that kind of euphoria and kind of like excitement you feel like she feels when she finds a new mushroom that she has never tasted before and how like excited she is to kind of like dust it off and like try to get it all cleaned up you know before she takes it home and then puts all this love and care to like cooking it and frying it tasting it seeing how it could work in different recipes and that is something as someone yeah who does love cooking something that I really appreciated because a lot of what I do is I go to the grocery store and get food like I I'm, I'm horrible at gardening and I've <laughs> tried various times to no success. Um, but kind of knowing where food comes from and even finding it yourself and like exploring the earth to find a new type of uh, plant or to type of ingredient that you can literally go ahead and try and taste at home. Um, I thought was such a cool thing that, um, you know, is I think unique and probably something that a lot of people don't think about. They just kind of think, you know, 
we almost all, I think sometimes forget that like, you know, produce and certain, certain meats and stuff, they, they come from plants and animals that are grown and harvested and, you know, you know, killed and such for our consumption. I think some people just think it comes from a factory and it's, it's not actually a, you know, a living thing at some point in time. And it's just a really good reminder that, um, you know, you can get something from the ground into your plate. Um, and that, you know, we should probably have a greater appreciation for food and where it comes from. Like in Japan, there's a, a phrase before you eat every meal, it's, it's, uh, itadakimasu. And it means literally means like, thank you to the farmers and to the people who allow us to put this food on the table, um, and who put hard work for us to consume this meal is the essence of that phrase. And I feel like sometimes that gets, that gets lost at least in America. And, and I really appreciated, um, how she highlights that in this book. Yeah, 100%. And I think that goes back to understanding and respecting nature and where our food comes from, even down to mushrooms. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this definitely goes in the broader sense of understanding what is around you. And what she has done is understanding mushrooms. So she has hyper-focused, but she is understanding where these come from and respecting the ingredient. And she talks about, you know, the secret mushroom spots that all these different characters have. And it's like a whole thing. And um, I really could feel her enthusiasm and joy in foraging throughout the whole book and her respect for finding a rare mushroom. And it was just something that I feel like we could definitely take those concepts and apply to, you know, other ingredients that we find that, you know, we use to make you know, our food. And I just, I just love that about the book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, we probably could go on forever about (laughs) mushrooms, but we will spare our audience, um, uh, before we dive too deep down the mushroom rabbit hole. Um, but (laughs) rabbit hole pun intended that time. So that was our second discussion pick, The Way Through the Woods of Mushrooms in Morning by Long Lit Woon, and that is translated by Barbara J. Havland, and that's out from Spiegel and Growl. So those are our two discussion picks, and so of course we have further reading because um, there are just so <laughs> many great books out there that we could have talked about. So if you're looking for more, um, we have a list for you. Yeah. So um, I'll go first. The first um, further reading I have is called The Hour of Land, A Personal Topography of America's National Parks, and this is by Terry Tempest Williams. So this book has been described as part memoir, part natural history, and part social critique, and really focuses on America's national parks. And um, uh, really, Terry Tempest Williams talks about her um, experience is going to uh, these parks and she um, is focused on, on studying um, nature as well. And um, I still have yet to pick this one up, but I'm very excited um, to, to pick it up because I've visited a couple of national parks um, and, and very much uh, enjoyed my experiences and want to learn more about the various national parks that um, America has to offer. Um, so that was my first further reading. And the second one is um, Wild from Lost to Found on the Pacific Crest Trail uh, by Cheryl Strayed. And uh, this is a memoir about how hiking helped recenter uh, Cheryl Strayed um, when she kind of hits rock bottom um, in her 20s, I believe, um, and how really helps her pull her um, out of, of her kind of depressive state when she needed it most. And I read this right after I moved back from the Bay Area, California. And I was like, oh, you know, I uh, wish I would have known about all these great things about the Pacific Crest Trail before I moved back to the Midwest. Um, And she hikes very many miles. um, And uh, a lot of people are like, you are, you have not prepared enough (laughs) to do this. And, um, and she, she does it all on her own, tests it out. And I said, you know, it takes an incredible person to do that. So it was very fascinating. If you're into hiking and into like long distance hiking, this is definitely the book for you. 
Uh, Kendra, what is your further reading? So I have a few books on my TBR that I wanted to mention. Um, so one of them is Mountains Piled Upon Mountains, Appalachian Nature Writing in the Anthropocene, edited by Jessica Corey. Um, and a lot of people don't know this, but there is a lot of environmental um, work happening in Appalachia, um, protesting mountaintop removal. A lot of Appalachia does not have clean drinking water. Um, there's a lot going on that I don't think a lot of people realize. What this is, is 50 writers are having, um, 50 writers have contributed pieces of fiction and nonfiction and poetry that really capture different aspects of Appalachia, which of course extends, you know, from New York state all the way down to Northern Georgia and Northern Alabama. So it's a vast region with a lot of different kinds of nature. And so I really appreciated them looking at the broad scope of Appalachia instead of like, I guess, what the general populace thinks of as Appalachia. Another one I wanted to recommend is Oak Flat, A Fight for Sacred Land in the American West by Lauren Redness. And this is about um, the fight for sacred land um, from the Apache. And Oak Flat is a sacred mesa. And then a mining company came in and just took over and started destroying their sacred you know, land. And so this is a, a, a look at the fight for that land. And the author is a settler, but I have seen um, a number of indigenous folks positively review this book. And the book itself has a lot of illustrations. If you're listening to the audiobook, there is a PDF with the illustrations as well. And so it's just a gorgeous object. And it really points out that these fights for sacred land um, that indigenous folks are still doing today. I mean, you have Stop Line 3 happening in northern Minnesota right now, and I will include a link to that as well as these books. But it's really important that we support indigenous people as their treaty um, rights are being violated by corporations um, to steal their natural resources or, you know, to build pipelines under them, which is not healthy for the environment um, and different things like that. So, so... Those are some recommendations, and of course, they will all be linked in the show notes. Do not worry. You do not have to remember all of those titles. <laughs> <laughs> so there's our enthusiastic discussion of all <laughs> things uh, flora, fauna, and everything in between. Um, Sachi, where can people find you about the internet? Yeah, so people can find me on the internet, mainly on Instagram, at Sachi Reads. And everyone can find me at KD Winchester. And those, of course, will be linked in the show notes as well. And that's our show. Many thanks to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. This episode was produced and edited by me, Kendra Winchester, with music by Miki Saito and Isaac Green. Join us next time when Kendra and Jacqueline talk about books around the theme of incarceration. In the meantime, you can find Reading Women on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. Thanks for listening.